0: The Truth of Poetry, Reflections on Virgil's Aeneid by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 6. This is the second week in a row that I've gone over this material, namely Book 6 of the Aeneid. In last week's session, I feel I got too caught up in Virgil's labyrinth and poetic illusions to carry out my chosen task, which is to ask about the truth of poetry, classical pre-Christian poetry, so to speak, and to probe its truth-telling potential by going to the very places in Virgil's poem where it sags under the weight of an excluded truth that seems periodically to threaten the poem's moral intelligibility by breaking suddenly in on its underlying assumptions and revealing their incoherence and implausibility. For me, this is the real drama of this poem. Is it going to break down or not? Can Virgil carry it through to the end or not? Will he throw in the towel or not? And the the image that comes to me is the sagging in here, breaking down mid-course in the poem, and then intruding itself all the way along. When I speak here of the underlying assumptions, I think the, the twin engines of Virgil's poem are more or less what we might call history and fame. That is to say, what Virgil is trying to do in his poem is say that the reign of Augustus and what it represents and the Roman historical thrust that it has begun is the historical breakthrough which will change the world. And that by giving our energies to to that structure and to to that historical thrust, we will be doing the most important thing. And that those who give their energies to that will be rewarded by what is the Greco-Roman version, the classical version of immortality, namely fame. And fame and history both represent a way of outflanking death, in a way. To, To participate in something that will live on after one dies is a way of outflanking the problem of death. To become one of the, quote-unquote, immortal ones, that is to say the ones revered for all time by those that come after them, is a way of outflanking death. These are secular forms of immortality, and and they're right at the heart of this poem. Virgil is a pious and religious man, but not in any conventional sense, and certainly he doesn't take the gods in the Roman pantheon terribly seriously. So what he has to offer is simply that. I sum it up by using the words history and fame. But the question is, is that enough to sustain his hope? And I think it's not. And I think that begins to show. And in a sense, Virgil carries through the work to the end, uh, but with grave misgivings that, that show up all the way through the poem. I still think the best two categories for understanding just about anything, but particularly for understanding literary offering, are the categories of myth and gospel. Myth will leave out one little thing in order to make every other thing intelligible. And gospel will focus all of its moral concern on precisely that and tell an entirely different story. And so all of literature, I think, can be seen in terms of those two categories. And most literature, of course, is somewhere in between, as Virgil's is. Myth, of which Virgil's poem is a brilliant and awkward stepchild, builds its epistemological and cultural verification by rejecting the stone that the builders of cultural enterprises have rejected since the foundation of the world. That rejection and the epistemological discretion born of it defines classical poetry as much as it does classical philosophy, and it renders each of them incapable of recognizing the new epistemological foundation represented by the cross and the new anthropological undertaking, which Paul calls the new anthropos, the new humanity, that the revelation of the cross sets in motion that's basically where i situate the poem that virgil's written and what i want to do now is take a look at book 6 which is really the pivotal book in the the poem and notice what's happening something as i say is sagging the scaffolding of the poem the assumptions on which the poem is built are beginning to give way under the weight of a of a truth that's intruding on them and there are lots of examples of that all the way through, and I've pointed to them, but the probably the most powerful one is the labyrinth metaphor in chapter Five. There's the funeral games for Anchises, and after that, the Trojan boys, the young boys, begin to do their military march, which is maneuvers, highly choreographed maneuvers which are rem, which are reenactments of battles and training for these boys to partake in the real thing so it's a it's a ritual which remembers the past as all rituals do. and and defines the present and prepares those who uh, who are participating in it to carry forward those rituals in ritual life or in actual life into the future. Virgil looks on this and he sees it and it's marvelous and he sees that the order is very impressive, but lo and behold, the order is born of violence. The order would not be there were it not for the institution of war. So something begins to give way, in a sense, as Virgil is watching this scene. Virgil's the poet, of course, but we can speak in this way, I think. And he gives two similes, and we talked about it before, and I reverse the order of the similes because I think the the first one he gives is the more powerful, but by giving it first, he essentially takes away some of its power, and I think he does that intentionally. So if we reverse them and put the more powerful, the two similes, later we really get the the significance. first simile, which I want to talk about, which is the second one he talks about, is he looks out and he, he sees that these boys, that this highly choreographed military maneuver, parade, is absolutely thrilling for these young fellows. He says, they interweave in sport of flight and battle like dolphins, which when swimming liquid seas will cleave the Libyan and Carpathian deeps and play among the waves. They love it. For them, this is great. This sounds good, but then we have to consult the second simile. But before we do, let's put it in a contemporary context. Imagine, instead of looking out and seeing Trojan boys going about these maneuvers, what we see is grown men dressed in jungle camouflage on maneuvers, much as the Trojan boys were, calling themselves the Order, Aryan Nation Group, White Aryan Resistance, Michigan Militia, Posse comitatus, etc., the inflammatory rhetoric of talk show rabble rousers ringing in their ears. And what we would notice is they love it. Now, I, I bring that contemporary metaphor in because it's relevant, but also because when one sees that they love it, that's when one has to come to grips with something. It's like dolphins rollicking. It's a welcomed experience, and it's only when we let that sink in that we can really feel the power of Virgil's second simile, which is, still watching the boys, he says, they were armed, they mime a battle, and now they bear their backs in flight, and now peace made between them, gallop side by side as once. In ancient days, so it is said, the labyrinth in high crete had a path built out of blind walls, an ambiguous maze of a thousand ways, a winding course that mocked all signs of finding a way out, a puzzle that was irresolvable and irretraceable in such a course, so intricate the sons of Troy maneuver. And I think it's a tremendous realization that the poem, in a sense, is trapped. Because what the poem is trying to do is point a way out. The poem is saying... The Augustan historical thrust is a way out. Caesar Augustus and Pax Romana and the peace that Rome can impose on the world is in fact a way out of this terrible problem of violence and war. And suddenly he's confronted with this fact, which is labyrinthine, that our way of getting out is always part of the thing we're trying to get out of. Because at the heart of the Roman peace was Mars, power, force. Later on, when Anchises is giving Aeneas a tour of the underworld, he points to Romulus. Romulus founded Rome by killing his brother. Right there you have the problem. The founding act is always a violent act. And the problem that disrupts culture is always violent. And the way to solve violence is by violence. The way to end war is with a war. The way to stop murder is with murder. In other words, it's, that's the labyrinth right there. And Virgil, who is sing, trying to sing the praises of this very impressive historical institution, which has brought a considerable amount of peace to a world that was racked with civil war before, he's trying to sing the praises of this, but it's patently clear that the peace it brings is the peace of the sword of the power structure. Virgil, like all other Romans at the time, or most of them, was happy to have it because it was a hell of a lot better than what went before it. Nevertheless, he's sensitive enough to see the foundation on which it's based, which is just another version of the problem it's trying to eliminate. So there's the labyrinth. There's the historical labyrinth. Mid-course in the poem, Virgil's project begins to sag under the weight of a realization that seems to be mounting in the background of his thinking an intimation that finds its most salient expression in the simile of the Cretan labyrinth made of blind walls. In Book 6, he returns to the simile of the labyrinth, but this time his interest is with Daedalus, the man who fashioned the labyrinth. And Daedalus is a kind of archetypical poet. He's a maker of things. He's an inventor. Virgil is concerned with Daedalus. Daedalus knows why there's a labyrinth. He built the labyrinth. He knows how to get out of labyrinths. So, Daedalus becomes a very fascinating figure. In a sense, Daedalus represents the epistemological problem that the poem has suddenly stumbled upon. Is there a Daedalus around who knows about these labyrinths, was there before them, created them, knows what they're for, knows how to get in and get out? I would say the poem becomes a little preoccupied with Daedalus. Now, in order to understand Virgil's references to Daedalus, we have to know the whole story. And this is where I got bogged down last week, and I'm going to try not to get bogged down this time through. I'm going to try to run through this very quickly. This is like the, those those guys that do all of Shakespeare in 30 minutes or something. So here's the story as quickly as I can do it. The king of Crete, Minos, built a temple to Neptune. He asked Neptune to give him a, a sacrificial offering to offer at the dedication of the temple. Neptune gave him this great white magnificent bull. Minos thought the bull so striking that he kept it for himself and offered another bull at the dedication ceremony. Neptune was outraged. You don't, you see, you don't interfere with these sacrificial recipes. Once you have one, you keep it, you pass it on, you do not change it. He changed it. Neptune became angry. He in, inflamed Pasiphae, Minos' wife, with this unnatural passion for this bull. Pasiphae goes to Daedalus, asks Daedalus to build a wooden cow. She climbs into the wooden cow and mates with the bull. The bull impregnates her. She gives birth to this monster, the minotaur, with the body of a man and the head of a bull. The minotaur is a ravenous sacrificial beast wanting more and more victims. This is what, ha- by the way, we could analyze this whole thing. This is why I'm trying to not get around it without doing it. But you could analyze what happens in, in a culture when you when you have a breakdown from a a revered sacrificial operation, which is economical in terms of its victims, it breaks down and often gives gives birth to a sacrificial system, which is much more bloody, demanding many more victims. You get this in the Toltec uh, tradition, by the way, when you go from, from Quetzalcoatl to Tezcatlipoca. Now we have a monster that wants more and more and more victims. Something has to be done. What has to be done, of course, is to separate this sacrificial monster which is really the dark heart of the whole primitive sacred system, from ordinary life, from the profane order, and you do that with a labyrinth. So the labyrinth is simply an architectural version of myth. That is to say, it's this fascinating thing with twists and turns in it, and one never suspects that in the heart of it is this sacrificial monster Mm -hmm. until you happen to stumble upon it, and suddenly the truth, quote-unquote, of the myth is revealed to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's what Deedalus does. Betelus, who created the situation to try to overcome the last problem, which was the wrath of Neptune, creates another sacrificial situation, which is even greater. So now we have the labyrinth. Meanwhile, one of Minos' sons goes off and gets killed at Marathon, and Minos blames it on the Athenians. He goes to war with the Athenians. He defeats them. They surrender. The terms of the surrender are such that the Athenians have to send every year seven youths to Crete to be fed to the sacrificial minotaur. And then Theseus, the prince of Athens, comes. You see, what Theseus comes to do is what Aeneas is doing in this story. That is to say, he comes to end that labyrinth. And he's going to end the problem that the labyrinth represents by killing the minotaur, which is just, in other words, you kill the monster. The way out is to kill the sacrificial monster. Inside the labyrinth is the sacrificial monster. And the way to get rid of that is to kill the sacrificial monster. In other words, to turn the sacrificial system on its crude and clumsy administrator. So it's Satan casting out Satan. It's simply the same thing. The fact that Theseus goes in and kills the minotaur, it just shows you how labyrinthine it is. He simply performs another sacrifice. He gets there, or Ariadne falls in love with him. She doesn't want him to get eaten up, so she goes to Daedalus again, third knock on Daedalus' door. Uh, How do we do this? He says, take a thread. You know, he finds his way in. He kills the Minotaur. He finds his way out. Meanwhile, Theseus takes Ariadne off to the sunset, but only gets as far as the Isle of Naxos and leaves her there, abandons her, just as Aeneas had abandoned Dido. Then we get to the part of the story that becomes more of concern to Virgil in chapter 6, and that is that to punish Daedalus, Minos puts Daedalus and his son Icarus in the tower for all of their activities, especially for allowing Theseus to kill the minotaur. Daedalus builds wings from the feathers of the birds that roost in the tower. He and Icarus fly away. He tells Icarus, don't fly too close to the sun because the sun will melt the wax that I put the wings together with and you will fall down. And Icarus, of course, flies up close to the sun and his wings melt and he falls. There are all kinds of things we could say about this story, but what I want to do is really focus on what Virgil becomes fascinated with in the story, and that is Aeneas goes to Cumi to consult the Sibyl at Cumi to find out how to get in the underworld so he can get some advice from his father, his deceased father Anchises. And when he gets there, he goes up to the temple of Apollo at Cumi, and lo and behold, the temple doors, golden temple doors on the temple of uh, Apollo at Kumi are carved by Daedalus and they are this whole story that I just rehearsed, almost the whole story. Daedalus' last inventive act is a mythological one or a mythopoetic one. It's an attempt to give a glorious golden account of the whole troubling story as a tribute to Apollo, the god of music art and eloquence. Daedalus carved the story on the golden doors of the temple of Apollo at Cumi, where Aeneas has gone to consult the Sibyl. On the amazing doors, Daedalus remembered the story of his own many trials in a decidedly muse like fashion. As you know, going along with my two categories, gospel and myth, are the two forms of inspiration, the paraclete and the muses. The muses, the word mu means to close the mouth and close the eyes. They tell a story that is very discreet in not recognizing something very essential to the story, namely uh, the victim, the sacrificial aspect of it, and so on. So Delus remembered the story of his own many trials in a decidedly muse-like fashion, just the way Virgil is trying to remember the troubling events that led to Roman greatness. That is to say, surrounding them in the rosiest possible glow. So Aeneas looks on these magnificent doors and what he sees is this. This is what Virgil says in his poem. When Daedalus, so the tale is told, fled Minos' kingdom on swift wings and dared to trust his body to the sky, he floated along strange ways up toward the frozen north until he gently came to rest upon the mountaintop of Chalkis. Here he was returned to earth, and here he dedicated his oar-like wings to you, Apollo. Here he built a splendid temple in your honor." So it's all very beautiful. The the, the landing is even gentle. It's, a, it's one of those soft landings. He came gently to rest on the mountaintop and built this temple to you. So uh, everything is peaceful. There's something not mentioned. But the interesting thing is that the thing that is not mentioned is the thing that concerns Virgil. That is to say, Virgil is not quite able to let it go unmentioned, which shows that he's not quite totally under the power of the muses, because he mentions that it was unmentioned, which is the beginning of the end of the muses' reign. Now, Virgil is not operating under the paraclete. The paraclete would have said, well, wait a minute, what about this? No, that's a little asking too much. But at least Virgil begins to notice, in order for this story to have made that kind of sense, in order for it to end on such a marvelous Apollonian note, you see, and to be a great salute to the god of eloquence and art and music, something had to be left out. And Virgil actually calls attention to this thing. So he says... Upon the gates, Daedalus carved Androgeos' death. Androgeos was the son of Minos that went off and got killed at Marathon. Upon the gates, he carved Androgeos' death. And then the men of Athens made to pay each year with seven bodies of their sons. Before them stands the urn. Lots are drawn. They drew lots to see who would be sacrificed. And facing this, he said, another scene, the land of Crete rising out of the sea, the inhuman longing of Pasiphae, the lust that made her mate the bull by craft her mongrel son, the two-formed minotaur, a monument to her polluted passion. And here the inextricable labyrinth, the house of toil, was carved. But Daedalus took pity on the princess Ariadne's deep love, and he he himself helped disentangle the wiles and mazes of the palace. With a thread, he guided Theseus' blind footsteps. And then he says, And Icarus, you also would have played part in such a work had his grief allowed. Twice he tried to carve your trials in gold, and twice a father's hand had failed." Now, that to me is an intriguing reference to what didn't get put on these doors, even though there was an attempt to put them on the doors. If we see this in the larger frame of this whole poem, you have these magnificent doors, Apollo, the god of order, and beauty, and music, and all of that. and. Virgil is saying something got left out. And what got left out was the last victim of this thing, the one most in the heart of the artist himself, the the poet himself. And so something has broken down. And Virgil is actually calling attention to it. And he's saying in a sense that in order to carve these golden doors, Daedalus literally had to look away. He could not try to do that. You could imagine one way of saying is, that had he put Icarus there at the end of the story, then it would not have ended in a nice la-dee-da way. It, the, the doors would have ceased to be golden. They would have become iron or something. You see, the story would have had some other ring to it. And so this is what the muse inspires one to do, is to see that part which would make the story troublesome, morally troublesome, and to just avert the eyes so that one is not troubled by it, so that one can pass on. I mean, the poet's great duty is to pass on this poetic reassurance about who we are and why we're here and and how great our ancestors were and so on and so forth, to make us reassured about the past and determined to to carry it on in exact replication. I think what Virgil is doing in this poem is writing at two levels. He's trying to fulfill his obligation to Caesar, Rome, his friends uh, who've implored him to write this patriotic poem, and he's trying to discharge his obligation to posterity at the same time, and they are in conflict. And so he writes the poem. He's like Shakespeare. You know, Shakespeare wrote plays so that the groundlings would have a lot of fun and get some laughs, and his fellow sophisticates who were up in the boxes would get all the nuances. There's a little bit of that in Virgil. And so he's doing these things, but he's inlaying the poem with certain other reservations. And right after he calls attention to the fact that Icarus is conspicuously absent from the doors of Daedalus, he then says, quote, the Trojans, Aeneas now and his men are standing in front of these doors being completely awed by them. He says the Trojans would surely have looked closely at each scene. Had not Achates sent on in advance returned together with Deiphobus Diaphobe is the priestess at the shrine, and Diaphobe suddenly bursts in on this scene of contemplating these doors, and says, "This is no time to gape at spectacle." So there's an abrupt interruption here, because they're looking at this at these doors, and it could be variously interpreted. But in light of what Diaphobe suggests that they do, I think uh, we're we're um, right in interpreting it as a way of avoiding something that might have occurred had they stopped to ponder this. I think it's almost Virgil saying to us and to the the, um, readers who might be in a position to hear this, if you stop and look at this and notice that I've called attention to what's not depicted on the door, something may dawn on you. And so, and it's precisely to prevent that dawning from occurring that the priestess uh, of Apollo rushes in and says, we don't have time for this. We don't have time to ponder this. We have much more important things to do. We have to go sacrifice a few animals, and we have to go fall into a ecstatic fit and go into the underworld where all the dead are. This is much more important than sitting here trying to come to grips with this story. What occurred to me, of course, reading this, is... What's become one of my favorite favorite passages in in Luke, which is at the crucifixion luke twenty three verse forty eight where it says the when all the people who had gathered for the spectacle saw what had happened, they went home beating their breasts. Uh, so those at the crucifixion came to see a spectacle and they actually saw what happened. the word in in Luke's gospel is theoria, which means They had a a bigger vista on what happened. Suddenly they began to see it in another light. One could take the story that's depicted on those doors and tell the whole story, the supreme deconstruction of which is the crucifixion. In other words, it's fundamentally the same kind of spectacle. And here they're standing before it and they're contemplating it, which is what they should do. Now they they're, they 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 they're doing it before the revelation of the cross and so on. But nevertheless, I think it's I think it's significant that the Sybil realizes that that's dangerous from the point of view of the primitive sacrality that she embodies and exists to perpetuate. So she breaks it up. Now remember this: in Luke's gospel, it says at the moment of the crucifixion, the crowd that came to to witness the spectacle, saw what happened, went home being their breath. In Matthew's gospel, it says, at that same moment, the veil of the temple, of the sacrificial shrine, was torn from top to bottom. Now, the reference to the temple is a reference to the whole sacrificial cult. And suddenly, the crucifixion tears the veil in two. Well, here, you could almost say, to prevent that, the civil comes along and says, no, we must go. And we're if we're not going to sit here and contemplate this story we're going to go perform sacrifices she says far better now to slaughter seven steers drawn from a herd the yoke has never touched and choose as many sheep as custom asks let's we have to go sacrifice back to the sacrificial world don't stand here and look at this in a sense this little, these golden doors represent a little outcropping of something other than the mythological system, precisely because Virgil has called attention to the one left out, the one excluded. And uh, the story says that Aeneas' men were quick to sacrifice at her command, but it also says that Aeneas was not. She has to scold Aeneas twice. She says, and are you slow to offer vows and prayers, Trojan Aeneas, are you slow? We'll never get into the underworld unless you do. So she represents this pull back into the, the primitive sacred, the realm of myth and mystification and uh, primitive religiosity and all of that. Aeneas is going into the underworld in the middle of this poem in order to have the basic premises of the poem reinforced by the most authoritative voice, the voice of his father. In a sense, the poem is in a kind of a midlife crisis. You see And so Aeneas has to go down and get a pep talk from this voice, the voice of the Father which is going to say to him, yes, indeed, this is the right this is the great historical thrust. this is the the way the world's going to redeem itself. And secondly, being famous for having given one's life to it is what you're supposed to do. Now what happens when we're in a world where things become a little shaky in that regard? We want some reassurance. And often when we want this reassurance, We turn to people like the Sybil of Kumi because we know somehow that they will be able to cough up some version of this. And we'll be able to participate in the same old labyrinthine game, thinking all the while that it's totally new and we're breaking out of the labyrinth. What makes the labyrinth so labyrinthine is that the door that leads into the next labyrinthine curlicue has a sign over it which says, Exit. And this is the problem, and Virgil is is here at this moment tacking up a sign that says just that over the whole Roman enterprise. Aeneas begins to hesitate in his great historical vocation, and so he has to go down and hear from his father. Ultimately, the question is, who is this father, this ancestral father, and what is he going to say? Who is the voice of the father? We have to, of course, go back to John, the chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. People look at Jesus. He questions their ethnicity, and he says, Well, I will lead you to a truth that will set you free. And they say, We're already free. Abraham's our father. We're already free. And he says, Your father's not Abraham. Your father is a murderer from the beginning, the liar, and the father of lies. That father's voice, which can be counted on to say, Yes, indeed your particular cultural enterprise is utterly unique your particular religious violence is utterly unique and god wants that kind and doesn't want the other kind and you have perfect moral license to go and carry through with it not only moral license you have a duty it's an absolute duty that's the voice of the father and that's precisely the voice of the father that jesus is deconstructing in the chapter eight of the gospel of john jesus says There's another father, you don't even know him. Not only do you not know him, you can't know him unless you know me. The voice of the father that Aeneas consults is the voice that can always be counted on to issue the stringent imperative that you must give yourself over to this cultural enterprise and all the violence that's required to carry it out because it is utterly unique and religiously sanctioned. And indeed he does that. So in firing Aeneas's soul with the love of coming glory, and is urging him to execute his military duties unflinchingly because the cause in which he will be doing so is a sacred cause. So the father's voice essentially sacralizes violence and distinguishes it from the violence that it opposes. And in thinking about this, I thought about the story in the Bhagavad Gita of Krishna and Arjuna, which is... Exactly the same theme. So I thought I'd just remind you of that story. In the Bhagavad Gita, there's a great war between the sons of Pandu and their cousins, the Kurus. And Krishna disguises himself as the charioteer of a great warrior named Arjuna. Arjuna is reluctant to take part in the war. And this is what made me think of this, because Arjuna is very much like Aeneas in this poem. He doesn't have the stomach for the kind of violence that awaits him. So he may just sit out the war. And Krishna says to him, You are a warrior, and it's your duty to go to war. And you can't sit up here on this hill overlooking the battlefield wringing your hands. You simply have to go down there and slay your enemies because they are your enemies. And don't ask any questions that would sap your resolve in that respect. The war begins and everyone is killed. And Krishna, of course, has said it doesn't matter because this is all just the material realm, which is small potatoes. I mention it somewhat ironically because we often revere that text, and it's a great poem in the same way that you would say the many is, or something like that in the West. But we overlook the implications of it. For example, I went when I began to think about this, I went to this text I have over there, which is the New LaRousse Encyclopedia of Mythology, and I read the summation of the Bhagavad Gita. It doesn't shock you that I didn't read the Bhagavad Gita this week. Anyway, because it just popped into my head, you know. So I went and read the summary of it. The writers who put that uh, together make uh, the following remark. They say that the Bhagavad Gita is a splendid philosophical poem, quote-unquote. And as I said, I think classical poetry and classical philosophy share an epistemological discretion and deference toward the logic of sacrificial violence. So to call the Bhagavad Gita a splendid philosophical poem, I think is absolutely correct. I'd say its philosophical splendor is made possible by an averting of the eyes from what was surely its origin in real violence. And it's the averting of the eyes in that respect that is the defining gesture of philosophy and classical poetry. And Virgil is having some difficulty doing so. That is to say, some difficulty in averting his eyes from the real violence. And I would say that's the moral problem, the moral snag that this poem hits halfway through. And to solve it, Virgil and his hero, I would say, you could put it this way, are going into the netherworld to hear some murky voice from the netherworld reassure them about how it is they should carry on with the wars that lay ahead it makes me think of course of the other famous ancestral voice in western literature which is the ghost of hamlet's father as you know the ghost of hamlet's father appears and he has a message for hamlet the message is The violence of the past was bad violence, it was against me and us, and you are therefore under a solemn obligation to perform another act of violence which is indistinguishable from it in actual fact, but, according to the voice of the ancestral father, absolutely distinguished from it in terms of its moral and religious sanction. So that's the voice of the ancestral father. The violence that has outraged us must be crushed by a violence that is indistinguishable from it, except for the fact that our violence is sacred and theirs is profane and vulgar. This is the voice of old Hamlet, the ghost of Hamlet. What interests me, among other things about Hamlet, I mean, Hamlet's an incredibly fascinating study of all these things, but at the very beginning, in the first scene of Act One of Hamlet, the first sighting of this ancestral figure, the ghost of Hamlet's father, is made by Marcellus and Horatio. And Marcellus says to Horatio, describing this specter of the ghost of Hamlet's father, quote, It faded on the crowing of the cock. Some say that ever against that season comes wherein our Savior's birth is celebrated, the bird of dawning singeth all night long. And then they say, no spirit dare stir abroad. The nights are wholesome. Then the planets strike. No fairy takes, nor witch hath power to charm. So hallowed and so gracious is the time. And Horatio says, so I have heard, and do in part believe it. Now, what I'm interested in is the first line of that. It faded on the crowing of the cock. I think Shakespeare's fully aware of all the things he sets in motion in his poetry and he's fully aware of the fact that the crowing of the cock is a Christian reference. It faded on the crowing of the cock. What faded on the crowing of the cock? The ghost of Hamlet's father, or, in a larger frame of reference, the ancestral voice. The power of the ancestral voice begins to fade on the crowing of the cock. And then there's this discussion about the birth of Christ. The birth of Christ is somehow pivotal, and the commemoration of the birth of Christ is somehow changes things in terms of this voice, this ancestral voice. So what are we to make of this? It faded on the crowing of the cock. The ancestral voice begins to fade. Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet, is simply a study of that fact. The whole play, Hamlet, is in a way hanging on that one line. It faded on the crowing of the cock. Hamlet is haunted by Christian misgivings about vengeance about the sacred obligation to avenge the wrongful death of one's kinsmen or people. And so it begins to fade on the crowing of the cock. The crowing of the cock is obviously a reference to what happens to Peter in the gospel, when suddenly it dawns on him, as we say, that's what happens when the cock crows, it dawns on us that the craziness and social contagion that led to the death was something I got caught up in and participated in, lost in its logic, And then the cock crowed, and the spell is broken, and one realizes what one has done. To say the voice of the ancestral father, or the specter of the ancestral father, that demands that we carry on with the violence, that specter, that voice, begins to fade with the crowing of the cock. That, I think, is a summation of what's happening in history under the influence of the paraclete. I think it's in light of that, that we have to understand Jesus' reference to God as his Father. I've often said the gospel brings about a certain undermining of conventional culture. And if that proceeds without us undergoing some kind of conversion that keeps pace with it, then the world gets in a hell of a fix. So we're in a world where the ancestral voice, the voice of the old patriarch who demands vengeance, is fading. And the question is, are we coming to know another father in place of that? Because it's only by coming to know the other father that we can really get out of the grip of the father of lies and murder from the beginning. I would say this. One can't get out of the grip of that force without coming to know another father. And Jesus says in John's Gospel, no one can come to the father except through me. If you know me, you know my father. So the question is, as the spellbinding power of the father of lies and the murderer from the beginning fades historically under the impact of the revelation of the cross. Has the redemptive and ennobling power of the father revealed by Jesus kept pace? And the answer is yes and no. That's that's a rhetorical question, but it's a real question. I don't think anybody's in a position to say yes or no. It's both, but it's a big issue. And I want to point to that very briefly. What I'm trying to do is bring the underlying tensions in this poem into our world a little more so that we're not just looking at an ancient artifact. I would say if the fading of the father's voice, the ancestral voice, occurs without a corresponding discovery of the Father Jesus knew, the divine Father Jesus knew, if the fading of the ancestral voice occurs without that discovery of the other father, Then certain moral misgivings arise about what that ancestral voice is uttering, about the imperatives that that ancestral voice is insisting upon. Moral misgivings arise about that, which awaken in us a response, which is to do to him what he was trying to get us to do to somebody else. But after the crowing of the cock, and increasingly over history, when this ancestral voice speaks, Moral misgivings begin to creep in, and these eventually are turned on the speaker himself and what he represents institutionally and historically. Now, let me give you an example. There's huge historical repercussions of this, which are happening in our world. I was reading lately a book on Dante, and this is absolutely, doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about at one level, but at another level, it's absolutely what we're talking about. It's a book by Ricardo Quinones, and he says the following. I'll just quote it out of context and then see what we can make of it. He says, After the French Revolution, the way of brotherhood prevailed at the expense of the father. In the age of revolution, where brotherhood was a great rallying cry, there was little room for the father. The contested figure was the father whether God the father, the king as father, or the patriarchal father. By its very nature, then, brotherhood may be a truncated concept, one involving violence toward the past, toward the father. Modern brotherhood. And in an earlier passage, Quinones had written, quote, we must recall that when the encyclopedias tried to chart the background of the concept of brotherhood, they met up with a distinct embarrassment. They found that this term, which was to figure so prominently in their discourse, had something of a murky past. Traditionally, they discovered two versions dominated, the blood brotherhood of the warrior class and the blood brotherhood that joined the disciples of Christ. This was one of the reasons why, to this day, of the triadic rubric of the French Revolution, liberty, equality, and brotherhood, the last is grossly understudied in comparison with the other two, end quote. Well, that's a footnote, you see. It's just a footnote. But what does that represent? It represents a form of brotherhood, which is a disguised turning on the father, which is modernity in a certain then the question arises, look at the French Revolution, we say, well, the voice of the father is being rejected, a brotherhood contrary to to the that voice is being formed, or a sisterhood in our day, that voice is becoming the object of universal contempt and suspicion, et cetera, et cetera. It deserves to be. The ancestral voice, the ghost of Hamlet's father, deserves this. question is whether the fraternity or sisterhood brought into being that is out to expel that voice, whether that isn't just another version of the voice, which, of course, it is. That's the point. It's Satan casting out Satan. It's the same song, second verse. You see, it's coming back around again. So the weakening of the ancestral voice, which, why is it weakening? It faded on the crowing of the cock. It's weakening in our world, but the underlying question is, have we discovered something altogether different from it, the God whom Jesus called Father? You see, if we haven't discovered that other Father, we take these anti-father or anti-patriarchal impulses, and lo and behold, they simply become a kind of ventriloquism for the ancient ancestral Father's voice, the same old thing. Jesus has something apropos of this which I talk about often because I think it's so significant for understanding modernity, he says in the Gospel of Matthew, Alas, for you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you build the sepulchres of the prophets and decorate the tombs of holy men, saying we would never have joined in the shedding of the blood of the prophets had we lived in our Father's day, thumbing the nose, our Father, you know, you know, those Father. And Jesus says, So your own evidence tells against you. And what, what is the evidence? The evidence is that we go and decorate the tombs of our father's victims, and say we would never have done that. In other words, what did our fathers do? They scapegoated the prophet. And what do we do? We scapegoat our fathers. And Jesus is saying, you don't see that you're just a chip off the old block. And what you think is, we've made a total break. This is This really is the labyrinth. This is the labyrinth that, that Virgil saw when he looked out onto that field and saw the Trojan voice. The next little curlicue in the labyrinth has a sign over it that says, exit. You just can't get out of it in, without a religious conversion, a feature of which in Christianity is the discovery of the God whom Jesus called Father. So we have, in the modern world, we have brotherhoods and sisterhoods expelling this Father, because the guilt in a sense, or the murderousness of the ancestral father has been revealed, and so we react against it. We react against it with the same impulse that gave rise to it. Apropos of that. The word patriot it's cognate of the word father, you know. We're patriots because this is our fatherland. Even patriots. Eventually, in the revolutionary age, in the modern age, even patriots eventually come around to hating the father. And so I'll quote to you from an article that was in the New York Times a week or two ago by uh, Peter Applebaum, who, by the way, this was right after the Oklahoma City thing. He's quoting uh, Danny Welch, director of the Klan Watch Project of the Southern Poverty Law Center in Montgomery, Alabama. And so Mr. Welch says, quote, The common thread that unites the 300-some-odd groups we watch and which brings a little cohesiveness, one says a little cohesiveness, to an otherwise disconnected movement is an extreme hatred for the federal government. It's there across the board, Mr. Welch says. I don't know how to phrase it, but I think they're heartened by how much mainstream citizens seem to be voicing the same thing. End quote. The, those who were saluting with the most fervor 15 years ago are now building bombs to blow up the federal government. So you say, the voice of the ancestral father is fading on the crowing of the cock. Good news or bad news? It's good news. It's gospel. But it can have some very bad consequences unless the conversion of the gospel is trying to bring about begins to occur. Because as morally flawed as that voice might have been, it almost surely presided over less violence than would occur if everything falls apart and the impulse that it once focused and economized is let loose in the world. So there's the there's the uh, situation. It's fading on the crowing of the cock. That voice is fading. And I think Virgil is a prophet in the sense that for him it's already fading even though he knows nothing about the biblical tradition knows nothing about the new testament nevertheless he's having to put a hearing aid on turn it up full blast in order to hear that voice so he can go on with his poem or you could put it the other way aeneas is having to put a hearing aid on so he can hear it so he can go on with his historical destiny you see the poem itself is beginning to give under that